Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Christopher Gilbert, who's the author of Caricature and National Character, The United States at War. This book was published in 2021 by the University, the Pennsylvania State University Press, and it is part of a series called Humor in America. Um, and this is a really interesting exploration of an understanding of American caricature um, and all that that entails um, through analysis of caricatures, particularly those that um, are created during America's involvement in a variety of different wars um, from its inception. But I'm going to let Chris tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome Christopher Gilbert uh, to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this really fascinating project. Hi, Christopher. Hello. How you doing? Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Tell me how you got into this uh, this project and and where you are and and what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, I I am in Northern Connecticut in my home right now, actually, but I, I am an assistant professor of English with an emphasis on communication and media at Assumption University. Uh, just recently tenured, actually. Uh, and congratulations. I, Thank you so much. Uh, and I, I came to this this topic, uh, you know, I actually, I should say, I came, I came to it a, a long time ago. Uh, I had sort of a childhood defined by an interest in illustration, uh, and particularly comic illustration. I was an avid reader of Mad Magazine and Cracked from an early age. I also liked to draw and still like to draw. I have two kiddos who, who always say that, you know, dad always draws quote unquote weird things. <laughs> um, and then you know, I got interested in Gonzo reporting of uh, by Hunter S. Thompson, but particularly the caricatures that accompanied that reporting drawn by Ralph Steadman, and eventually got to the point where, in uh, actually an undergraduate, but uh, of course in graduate school, I got interested in editorial cartoons as 
you know, even more widespread and, and dare I say popular examples of how humor makes its way into comic imagery that really deals with who and what we are as a nation and why. And there's been a lot of scholarship in recent years on comics and political cartoons that deal with things like patriotism and, and propaganda and even what uh, Hillary Shute calls visual witness in the documentary form. And so when I came around to writing my dissertation, all of this stuff was was very much lurking in my mind. And, and uh, I started to recognize that war times in particular represented critical moments where we would see in editorial cartoons and in caricatures representations of history, you know, past and present that are very much caught up in matters of cultural production. And so that's how the project started. And you, you sort of start off the book talking about Benjamin Franklin, and you also uh, make a claim that this sort of understanding of caricature and national character um, are particularly American, although, of course, many of other countries have lots of caricature and political humor. Can you explain a little bit about how this is uniquely American? Mm. Yeah, you know, of course, the history of, of caricature, I mean, my gosh, you can trace it back to ancient times, um, but then you can also uh, look at it in various forms in European traditions. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's that in and of itself as a, a comic form caricature that is, is not uniquely American. But what I found is that uh, when it comes to what we might call something like a collective self-understanding, you really see from the founding period forward, and I would even go so far as to say in the present day, uh, the use of caricature as a way to really grapple with what we might characterize as bigger ideas or bigger tensions around things like war and democracy, around peace and conflict, around self and other, where you get on this, uh, on on the one hand, a very strong sense that there is this. <laughs> we can even see it in the American uh, argot. You know, there, there's a, a sort of a defined, uh, or sorry, a divine sense of of national selfhood and and what we came to recognize as as national character. And on the other hand, you get comic representations that almost laugh at the idea that there could be such a thing that is is so predestined and so and so divine uh, and so you get that really again an ancient tension but uh, very much so in our own self-understanding between uh, the sublime and the ridiculous and I, I just found that to be shot through so much of the comic representation of Americanism across history and that comic representation is really what is driving uh, the research here in terms of trying to think about what the images are and how they're presenting this idea of the United States, of America, right? Um, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you call the sort of grueling work of recognition, um, which I believe is a quote from another scholar, but that this is really what is sort of at going on at the heart of um, caricature during these periods of time, in particular of war and tension. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because 
I feel like in, in, or I felt like, especially as I was starting the research that when you find these moments of, of crisis and it's hard to find a, a, a moment of crisis that is in many ways graver than a, a wartime, uh, you would see this flourishing of, uh, again, comic representations that try to take stock of what oftentimes come off as the the paradoxes that drive why it is we as a nation even go to war in the first place. And of course, that dates back even to the revolutionary moment. Um, and so it's it's this use of comicality to almost try and visualize so to show and to tell a deeper truth of what's going on in terms of the rationale for war and in terms of how warism or warfare or war mentalities uh, really bespeak both something of an exceptional response to the historical conditions but also something that is just so deeply rooted in our self-understanding from the get-go and in a, in a much more everyday sense, uh, which is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead of our, ahead of myself here, but that's, that's where we end up uh, in seeing how warism is even treated today. And so again, it, it, it gets back to that notion that <laughs> in order to, to deal with these uh, extenuating circumstances, you almost have to step back and, pr- and provide the distorted lens on what's going on to get a better idea of, of, I guess what quote is really going on. And and I wanted to ask you before we get into some of the particulars of the presentations during wartime is the toggling between this concept of national character which is distinct from patriotism. It's a kind of self-understanding. Um and you start the book by talking about some of the drawings that Benjamin Franklin did before the revolution, um, in terms of sort of casting the United States or the colonies, shall we, um, in, in contrast to the, the British imperialism. Um, can you explain a bit about sort of how we should think about caricature and how it, it sort of grasps at the understanding of national character? Mm. Yeah, well, and, and Franklin is a really good starting point for many reasons there, I think. But uh, you, you you began with the, in some ways, the difference or, or at least some distinctions that can be drawn between patriotism and national character. And that actually gets at, at the heart of part of what drove my demarcations of certain times in the book. And that's not just to say by, you know, specific war times where you can say, you know, here we're in World War One, here we're in World War Two, and so on. Um, but one of the things that I, I really worked through was when you have something like patriotism, or when you can make patriotic appeals, there's almost a nation that is presumed to be in place. You know, so to be patriotic on the 4th of July, the, the originary 4th of July already had to take place so that you can find yourself reenacting uh, the, uh, you know, all of the trappings that come along with that. And so patriotism almost requires <laughs> a sense of, of, of nationhood or of, of nation 
to even be enacted. Whereas national character is something that speaks to how it is we even, and you, and you use this terminology too, we understand ourselves as a nation, as something of a unified whole <laughs> that has particular attitudes and attributes and, of course, characteristics and histories that, that filter into it. And it's a sort of sense of self that, uh, that we share when it comes to our membership in all of that. Uh, and, and then, you know, it, it gives us that idea of what makes us one, so to speak, while it separates us from others. And so it almost provides a framework for establishing standards of, of judgment about membership itself, call it national membership. Uh, and so when it comes to uh, comic representations of that relationship. So eventually you get to the relationship between patriotism and national character when you get into war times that are, say, in defense of some national idea. Uh, the comic representations you see from Franklin forward really put forth a uh, in, really an image, an imagination of what is at stake in committing oneself to that membership or committing oneself to that particular idea. And it doesn't do so in a way, especially from Franklin forward, that presumes the patriotism from the get-go. You know, it, it leaves open room for, we can just use this terminology, laughing at or laughing off uh, things that we might recognize to be crucial to our shared history. Whereas patriotism and, and patriotic sentiments tend to push those more, you know, negative and even laughable uh, sentiments aside in favor of the nation or in favor of the cause. And and also an understanding of national character or, you know, sort of how do we see ourselves as a nation is also about essentially the narrative um, that we create or, you know, that that is is created through history, through experience, um, and that's also where you, you sort of talk about these images that that sort of have moved through different periods, like the eagle um, or Uncle Sam, um, and and that these are sort of how and the, and they change their meaning in different periods, but they are part of this understanding of sort of national character. Um, can you explain a little bit about those particular images as you sort of were tracing them through different periods as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a great contact point in many ways because, you know, I, I and I put it in the book, but I, I, I can't help but recall Franklin's sort of mock gesturing toward, you know, what if we didn't have the bald eagle as the iconic bird of the U.S., but we had something like the turkey. <laughs> uh, and then he works through a number of the characteristics that might go along with with making one decision over the other. Uh, and then, you know, as I, as I do research in humor studies and in comic studies, I can't help but think of how someone like George Meredith would, would quite frankly come out and say that folly is the prey and use that language. Folly is the prey of the comic. And so the comic becomes the way in order to say, prey upon what is foolish. Um, 
and that's interesting when you when you look at it over the course of U.S. American history, and again, of course, specifically in 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 war times, because what you find is that something like the eagle uh, morphs as much as it retains its iconic form. And so when you see it beginning to emerge, say, in uh, the late 1890s, when we get something like U.S. American imperialism as a very open part of, of foreign policy and international affairs, you know, the, the eagle becomes a representation of that political power and of, of, of the power of cultural politics that get associated with the U.S., and then you get into, say, Dr. Seuss's work, and the eagle becomes something far more problematic. It becomes something that represents what we might characterize as a U.S. American tradition. It might characterize something like a revolutionary spirit. But then it also comes to typify you know, the lazy citizen that won't back the war effort in World War II. And then you can carry that through to the work of uh, Ollie Harrington, who you know I feature in, in, in the book, and even in Anne Telnes. But in you know in, in Ollie Harrington's work, I'm thinking of the ways in which he will uh, utilize the imagery of the eagle alongside the imagery of the vulture, you know, and pit those two ideas against one another. Whereas the eagle is sort of this soaring creature that should be revered and, and awed when it's seen. Whereas the vulture, <laughs> you know, we can we can take the connotations that come with it. What what the characteristics of the vulture are when it comes to preying upon uh, certain parts of the world, um, and you know, so I could I could obviously carry on and 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 chart that. But what I found is that from eagles uh, to Uncle Sam to other iconic images that get featured in so many editorial cartoons, what you see in 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 the comic space is a way to challenge the extent to which they represent something quote unquote good or necessarily good about what it means to be uh, one who, who buys into or, or one who uh, embodies U.S. American culture or U.S. American character. And, and in terms of this understanding, this broad and, and shifting understanding of American culture or national culture um, and national character, which are not the same things, um, but are are often sort of looped ar- around understandings of who we are and what we're doing during particularly wartime engagement. You don't necessarily set up the book to trace this chronologically. You do a bit, but not exactly. Um, and I would love for you to sort of talk about how you conceptualized the way that you organized your research in the book. Yeah, I love that. That's a really great observation. And I appreciate it because I think I even say in the intro that I do a chronology of sorts, <laughs> but the chronology becomes problematic pretty quickly when you realize how recursive so many of the themes and the the images can be when you start to mark them in different historical moments. And so what I tried to do was to really think about uh, the complexities of these images as they 
are really caught up in what I might characterize as the conventional wisdom of humor itself. And so I guess I'll back up and say this, you know, I, I have, I've been struck for a long time now by what seems to be the prevailing idea that, you know, humor is humor insofar as it's situated. You know, we find something to be humorous or we find uh, an editorial cartoon to work in this day and age or that day and age because it's so topical. You know, it's a sign of the times. And yet there's so much of what we can pull from history, and I'll stick to the U.S. American context here, that makes just as much sense, if not more, now as it did, you know, almost a century ago, which is why I think you're seeing and we've seen recently uh, these <laughs> reconciliations of present day circumstances with, for instance, the political cartoons, the editorial cartoons of someone like Dr. Seuss, you know, and and we as a culture going back and saying, wow, look at all the the, the resonances that we still see between what Dr. Seuss was doing then and, and, and what we see in American cultural politics now. And so I was, I, I was very much struck by the idea that it would not make good sense to simply say, okay, Flagg was doing his work and then Dr. Seuss kind of picked up that tradition and did his work and then Ollie Harrington went into that tradition, you know, and so on down the line. But instead to try and allow spaces to bring them all together in a way that was not simply chronological, but was much more intertwined uh, in, in pretty fascinating ways. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And that intertwining also gives you the opportunity to sort of reflect back on the wartime, the puncture of wartime, right? That, you know, whenever we think about the U.S. at war in particular, our history is like the Civil War was from you know, 1861 to 1865. We were in World War II from 1941 to 1945. And these are, they're often considered sort of punctures in the narrative history of the United States. Um, and, and they're grand and, and important and so forth. But it's, it's often the sort of, that's not how we usually operate. Um, and, and part of what you're looking at when you're sort of analyzing the, the humor and art that comes forward during this period is, you know, the fact that, uh, yeah, okay, it's a different experience when we are actively at war. Um, 
but that idea of of war and imperialism to a degree is not gone when we're not fighting a hot war. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want me to add on to what you just said, because I, I, I liked it. Uh, yeah, I mean, but... <laughs> I, I, I want you to sort of talk about how you saw how you saw the, the sort of flourishing during those those puncture periods um, as as, you know, as actually not necessarily deviating from the norm, just creating more opportunity to sort of dig into this concept of American character and American culture. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I guess I'll start answering that by saying, uh, or addressing that by saying that there was a, uh, in an early iteration of the book, there was a, a chapter that I had composed that actually I still have been working on and, and would like to put out there in the world at some point. Um, but it was on the work of Thomas Nast, you know, what what some have called the father of American cartooning, editorial cartooning. Um and he he did this piece that has not really been studied a whole lot, and so I, I wrote quite a bit about it. Um, but he he did a, a Broadway show that featured a combination of obviously visual art because that's what what he was he was caught up in, um, but also this narrative history of the U.S. at that time. And so it comes out in the late 1860s uh, and into the 1870s, and it's dealing with uh, what he calls the grand caricaturama <laughs> of U.S. history at that moment. And what you find is that it is a look back, so to speak, uh, at the U.S. as really, in many ways, a warring nation, while at the same time, it's looking forward in a way that says, you know, here's what we need to be cognizant of as a culture, as a nation, if we are going to uh, understand ourselves as say small d democratic while also recognizing that warism is fundamental to that democratic being. And so part of what I try to do in looking at the various moments where you can really see, you know, I think what you rightfully characterize as the the flourishing of comic artwork in in war times is to say that even someone like Dr. Seuss has sort of a, a, a punctuated moment, you know, that puncture, as you say, where he's doing ad campaigns and ad work and thinking of himself as a, as an illustrator. And then he gets sucked into the wartime. And then it would be too easy to say that those two instances are separate in that, you know, the wartime was a moment and, and what was before it and what came after it were separate because you can't understand, I don't think <laughs> Dr. Seuss's war artwork without, looking at his ad campaign work around insecticides and sugar and oil, and then looking at the work that he did even in children's books following his war work. You know, you see in in many ways a grappling with uh, the fallout from war culture and even Cold War culture uh, that happened after the fact, (laughs) so to speak. And so I think recognizing that there isn't simply this easy demarcation, but rather this very complicated way in which war permeates other aspects of culture and filters into it. And even gets us to the point these days where we can talk about something like forever war. And that doesn't have to be just hot wars. It can be the fact that warfare or warism or however we might want to talk about it is something that haunts us, that sticks with us. Uh, far beyond the specific dates where we say the war began and the war ended. 
And and that's what I, I found really fascinating in your analysis in terms of, as you say, sort of putting these drawings and, and these sort of commentaries in context, but also that the context might just continue to be actually the same, even though the war may be over or the war may be starting. Um, and And so I also wanted to ask you a bit about... Um, the artists themselves that you're looking at, um, you have a number that you focus on in the chapters. Um, and as you say, you, you sort of have, you have other work that you're also working on with regard to NAST. But how did you distinguish these particular um, caricature artists and, and to some degree thinkers um, to pull them together in this particular manner? Yeah, well, you know, conceptually, I, I I know I say at some point in the intro that I'm in some ways following a, a scholarly tradition where you can understand something by looking at exemplars, you know, what Kenneth Burke would call representative anecdotes, which I think is is important because there's no way you can account for everything, of course. Um, and then also, you know, I think it's important to take those exemplars and situate them, as I think I tried to do, in a broader historical context. Uh, and even in this case, in a, in a broader context of doing things like editorial cartoons and in caricature art. Um, but I settled on on these artists, uh, you know, I can simplify it and, and say that the, the, the basic criteria revolved around whether or not the artist was not simply utilizing editorial cartoon the edit- uh, the editorial cartoon as a space for visual commentary on war but also utilizing that space as one in which the very question of what it meant to commit oneself to membership in a national attitude or the attributes of a nation that became a focal point and so war became a foil or even you might say a comic foil for figuring out what it is even going to mean to say protect a national character that we as a culture seem to want to protect what might it mean to move beyond it what might it mean to change the landscape of so-called self and other as a result of war you know and and so i think i was looking for or looking at not really looking for but finding as i was looking at these editorial cartoons and cartoonists i was finding that that those like flag and seuss and harrington and telnace were very much caught up in and telnace even is now in what it even means to express that commitment to to have something like a commitment to a national character in the face of sometimes glaring contradictions and glaring paradoxes and glaring problems uh, when it comes to the histories that precede whatever uh, wartime we find ourselves in. And and you 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 know you did mention and you do mention um, that this sort of grew this book grew out of your doctoral work. Um, and is one of the questions that I often ask people about the research itself in terms of what did you find that was 
surprising and unexpected as you were diving into this and and sort of linking together these images with this idea of, you know, sort of national character of the United States and also the connection between war and warism and democracy in the United States and on the continent, this North American continent. I'm curious as to, you know, you you pull some interesting threads together to help us understand who we are um, and the contradictions involved in that. Um, but I'm wondering how how you sort of, you know, opened that can of worms and and what you found as you were working through it. Yeah. Well, there were many cans of worms, I will say, <laughs> that I found. Uh, you okay, know, a many couple cans of worms. Yeah, a couple of th- a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one has to do with uh, just the fact that this was very much uh, a dissertation in the first iteration that was about war. You know, it was kind of a, about editorial cartooning as what I originally called an art of war, a comic art of war. So it was kind of like editorial cartoons get to be, you know, get to become a space wherein we conduct this, uh, you know, it's coincident, but it's also uh, an alternative form, we might say, of nationalistic warfare. And then the more I started to get into it, I realized, well, I need to do a couple things. Humor needs to be much more of a focus, in part because, you know, that's in many ways the motivating factor behind a lot of what I do. Um, but also what needs to come out is is the ways in which we find comic expressions like editorial cartoons at the very heart of cultural production. And so one of the, I guess it seems like it shouldn't be surprising to me now, but I will admit that it was surprising to me then, so to speak, is that we have for so long as a culture done at the same time the work of saying you know oh things like editorial cartoons and the papers and elsewhere and even you know nowadays like late night talk shows um they're popular and they're they're prominent but you know they they're not really serious and they don't really matter and at the end of the day what matters is sort of the harder forms of power that we see playing out on on this or that political or cultural stage and yet we're also at the same time we have to, I think, recognize that these uh, these images across history carry immense rhetorical weight. And that came out over and over again in the course of my research. Uh, and so that was, in some ways, as I say, a surprise. But now it has become sort of a staple of of my thinking, you know, and it was almost confirmed just the other day. I, I, I oftentimes will scroll through and Telnace's Twitter feed, um, although I'm not on Twitter, so I have to do it on <laughs> I have to do it on my browser. Um, and so, but I but I'll look at her Twitter feed because I'm always curious. She always posts her her cartoons, and they're fascinating. I, I just love her work. Uh, and recently, for uh, in uh, relation to World Press Freedom Day, she drew and posted on Twitter a, a an editorial cartoon, and it features a jester with a neck ruff <laughs> that's made of uh, sharpened pencils. And the jester is holding up a barbell. And it's one of those old-fashioned barbells that has sort of the ball weights on either side. And one weight has the words, why are cartoons? And the other weight has the words, so powerful. So why are cartoons so powerful is the weight. And that's what struck me. It's the weight of the cartoons. That's where the power lies. 
And so I think if we put that at the center of the ways in which we approach uh, these sorts of everyday, popular, very prominent comic forms, we can start to take very seriously the ways in which they impact the historical course of things. And I'll just say that there's a, if we want to be recursive again, as I've said, these things are, um, you can go back to someone like Flag and recognize, you know, if cartoons and caricatures weren't so powerful, then why were they tied into committees on public information? Why did we have a cultural institution around the Bureau of Editorial Cartoons? Why did we find some of our most influential artists stopping what they were you know, doing in, in their everyday work and going in and doing cartoon films and doing these editorial cartoons for newspapers in, in the name of the war effort and so on? And so I think that was something that uh, as a cumulative thing that came from the research, it really struck me as something that was, um, you know, worthy of surprise, but uh, also worthy of even more attention. And and so what has this led you to in terms of not only an understanding of cartoons and comics and caricature, um, but also an understanding of our national character, of American national character? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, in terms of uh, the, the way that humor fits into it, uh, you know, I often will talk about uh, my sense of humor. And I, by that, I don't mean, you know, like what I find humorous per se, or what makes me laugh or what I find funny, because I think it's more complicated than that. I will often talk about humor uh, in terms of how it does not need to be caught up in things that are funny and uh you know, quote unquote humorous, which is to say that I have found myself looking at U.S. American culture with regard to humor, with regard to things like war times, and seeing how much the ancient sense of humor is really relevant. So, and by the ancient sense of humor, I mean it kind of in the, that olden scientific way that it used to be talked about with regard to temperament. Right, so if you go back to the four humors, the cardinal humors, you get things like blood and bile and phlegm. Uh, but what was always interesting to me about that is if you fold that into, say, studies of things that are humorous, it's really a question of balance and imbalance. That's really what's at the heart of it. And so, someone is out of humor or in ill humor if they are in some sort of imbalance. And you can even then, and I think I even say this uh, in the book, you can start to understand caricatures and editorial cartoons as rhetorical makers and responder, you know, makers of and responders to things like collective temperaments. Um, and so that makes it not just about looking for things that are funny or even amusing, but really thinking about the ways in which we get expressions of excesses and deficiencies so that you can have jokes and laughter, but you can also have bitterness and negligence and irritability and fear that gets folded into these public expressions. And then when it comes to uh, how that gets into matters of American national character, I really think uh, increasingly, you know, especially today, uh, what we get are uh, expressions of, of moments where we're trying to grapple with the imbalances between, and even the balances, unfortunately, but the imbalances between the follies of war and the failures of democratic peace. And I think that's why warism 
as both a an exceptional moment when it's you know when we are in war times um, it stands out just as much as warism does if we understand it as an everyday condition you know as something that's not about uh, agonism in in democracy or democratic practice but antagonism and even aggression uh, and how that folds into a, an idea that perhaps at the heart of what we understand to be our national character, we find the fight itself as a thing to protect. And we might find that to be, or hope that it would be a good thing in a, again, small D democratic sense. But what happens when that gets pushed to its excesses or what happens when certain deficiencies in what it means to, you know, be selves and others, but in a way that is more humane. And I, you know, I think those matters really, have stood out more and more to me, uh, honestly, the further I get away from this book. <laughs> um, as, as we talk about the further you get away from this book, I'm asked, I'm going to ask you what it is that you're working on now. <laughs> I, I am working on a second book <laughs> uh, and you know, as one would expect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what a perfect segue too, because as I'm saying what I just said, <laughs> uh, the, the, the tentative title for this second book is when comedy goes wrong. <laughs> and it is about uh well when comedy goes wrong but it, it's 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 about um what we expect of comic forms as a culture and as a in in certain comic forms as forms of cultural production and how they influence us uh when it comes to standards of judgment and even standards of comic judgment for either good or ill to simplify it uh, but that's that's the next project. I've written the intro to it. I'm working on a, a chapter for it right now, and so it is very much in the works. Well, I, I look forward to possibly talking to you about it when it comes out on the New Books and Political Science podcast, I hope. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. It's a plan. Um, I would like to thank Christopher Gilbert for joining me today to talk about his new book, Caricature and National Character, The United States at War. This was published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2021. And I am sure it is available at the Pennsylvania State University Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store to which you would like to give a shout out? Uh, you know, there actually isn't one that comes to mind, unfortunately. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but I, but I we'll would send everybody would... to... Penn State University Press website. Exactly. (laughs) And this is part of the Humor in America series, which I think is also fascinating. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.